So we're wheedling our way through the book of Genesis, and uh, we're ripping along at about, what, four verses a week? So we're going to jump ahead here. Last week we put on our tinfoil hats and talked about the Nephilim, and uh, this week we're going to talk about Noah's Ark. So hopefully the scriptures are behind me. You know, we often hear that this is a mythological story, that it's not true. It's just uh, a way to communicate religious truth. Um, And really, as I think about this, over the years I realized the world, they have to view it as a myth. Because the truth is, if it's true, and it is, if it's true, there are real consequences to our sin. God takes our behavior seriously. And the flood, however many years ago, has terrible things to, our, things to say to our world today. When you think about it, there's a message there that the world does not want to hear. Judgment of sins in the past by God, who takes an active role in the history of our society, is guaranteed to produce judgment in the future. I'm going to misquote Billy Graham, as I have many times. Uh, If God doesn't rise up and judge the United States of America, I I don't think we can say that anymore. (laughs) I I actually certainly believe we're under the judgment of God right now. I think Romans chapter 1 clearly shows us that we are way down the road of national, if not world destruction. But Billy was quoted this a long time ago. I heard him as a brand new Christian. And uh, he said, if God doesn't rise up and judge the United States of America, he's going to have to apologize to the people who died in the flood. Well, he didn't say that. Actually, he said he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But since we're talking about the flood today, I'm misquoting him deliberately. So today I'm looking at the flood as if it were an actual historical event. And I believe it was. Now, how do I know this is the truth? I go over this many times a year. How do I know that there was actually a flood? Now, if you've ever looked at Is Genesis Real on the Internet or you've ever followed any of these uh, teachers, there's remarkable stories on the Internet to prove scientifically and logically that the flood was real. I'm not going to do any of that. If you want to know if a scripture's solid, look at the scriptures and see what other prophets and people said about it. And you can look at the psalmist, you can look at Isaiah, Ezekiel, Luke, Peter, and uh, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, who, I'm, who I just like to believe is Paul, uh, all accept the story of Noah as true. But that doesn't prove anything to me because they could all be in error, except for this last one. Um, what did I do? Did I go too far? Uh, yeah, I had that up there, didn't I? As it was in the days of Noah. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Now, I didn't know who Jesus was when I first accepted him. I read a book that said Jesus died for my sins, that God actually sent his son to take my place of suffering, and that by simply calling on him, I could have an incredibly changed life. And laying in my bed one night in 1972, that's exactly what I did. Actually, it was August of 71. August of 1971. I said, God, if this is true, let it be true for me. 
And this Son of God, this Jesus, came into my life and changed me completely. Now, I have come to believe in the meantime that He's not only the Son of God, but He is God. So, it really doesn't matter what people say about Scriptures. What matters is what does Jesus say. And this is what He said. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. That has an ominous tone for us, I know. And we just got through the, uh, the Nephilim issue, and I think there's some ramifications of that that are very confusing, and I think a little bit scary, and I think we're actually in those days. But the point is that he makes, this is Jesus, God talking. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, they weren't paying any attention, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Was it a universal flood? Was there a flood? It seems like God thought there was. And that's good enough for me. For me, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Now, I talked last week about some of the reasons for the flood, but Genesis gives us these as the reasons. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Wow, we think about our day to day. And that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And I looked at TV last night and I thought, well, that fits. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. Now, you know, in, re in the New Testament, repentance, metanoeo, is a change of mind that leads to a change of our actions. Now, the scriptures are clear in Numbers 23 that God does not lie, neither does he repent. He doesn't change his mind. Excuse me, I'm under attack here by one little tiny mosquito. It's so small. He was so small. <laughs> now, on an eternal level, God did not change his mind. Nothing caught him by surprise. He never gains access to new information. He's not going to change his mind about you and I, and he's not going to change his mind about what he's doing. But on the level of his interaction with us, I mean, if you put it on a personal level, the way he treated me, his interaction with me changed when my attitude and my behavior towards him changed. Now, there was nothing of a surprise there for God. He knew what was going to happen, but the way he dealt with me changed the moment my attitude changed. Although he knows what will happen, he reacts to us in real time. And this is what he's doing. The actions of the old world didn't catch God by surprise. Neither does our behavior. But in real time, as we turn away from him, he turns away from us. As we back away, he backs away. I've often said the moment you turn around, he'll be right there. He'll be right there. But as long as you keep backing up, he keeps backing up. Well, he's responding to this world in real time, and in real time, the world got pretty bad. You know, uh, David, that, that one marked Jen. Mute that, will you? Oh, either Dave, either Dave, yeah. I'm hearing that static. I still haven't been able to filter that out. That's that uh, that mic. Yeah, all of a sudden, I don't know what it's doing. It's like somebody's trying to jam our jam our frequency here. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've all all of us that are parents think of the incredible, good, and wonderful lives that our children could lead, and we're stuck sometimes watching them make choices that we really wish they wouldn't make. And I think God's like that. It gets to a point where it literally hurts him at his heart. 
His heart breaks over watching the stupid things we do and the choices that we make. And I think that's what's happening here. I want you to notice also in, in, in these verses that, uh, I mean, did I get up? Do I need to be up there? And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowl of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We know the word for grace in the New Testament is unmerited favor. I can't say the word in Hebrew for grace. I've tried. It's, if you spell it out with English letter, it looks like chen or hen with a K in front of it. And somebody said if you just clear your throat at the same time you say the word hen, you'll have it. But I decided not to try that. Uh, because it sounds terrible the closer I get to it. But that's the Hebrew word, hen with a K in front of it, hen with a clear throat, uh, that is used to describe grace in the Old Testament. And it's, it's not as developed as the word grace in the New Testament, but it carries the same idea. It, it's something in Noah's behavior that created a favorable response from God. There was something about Noah that drew God to him. That's what the word implies. Certainly Noah was a sinner, just like all of us. We'll see that as we go through this. Yet in spite of his flaws, just like our flaws, Noah trusted God for his salvation. And as a result of Noah's faith, his whole family was saved. You ever think about that? You live a faithful life and you alter the eternal future of your family going forward. Because of Noah, we're here today. How many Old Testament and New Testament families, for that matter, are saved as a result of one faithful member? You just have to be that one faithful member. And I've noticed that, and I've said it many times as I've watched it in this church. We don't have massive numbers of people, but when, when a new person comes and a person gets saved, and, and God immediately starts working through their family, you can be that one person that God starts working through. Just like Abe and Seth and Enoch and Lamech, they believed the promise of God. They believed somehow through the sacrificial blood of a lamb or a goat that God would forgive their sins. So they got in the practice of meeting regularly, and we think it was probably on the Sabbath, and offering a blood sacrifice uh, in the name of the God that saved them, Yahweh. And, and as a result, they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. They found God's favor, unmerited favor. Now we're going to see as we go through this book over time. Yeah, it was just a tropical storm. I thought my audio went out. Uh, we're going to see over time that uh, God takes care of his people. And we don't need to be afraid. God is always taking care of his believers. We'll see it in Noah's time. But Noah and his family will be lifted up and persevered through the flood. We'll see in Lot in Sodom that his family, the believing remnant of his family anyway, will be lifted up and, and literally driven out of Sodom before it's destroyed. And we'll see in Abraham in Egypt how God will preserve him at a time where the devil could have wiped him out. And the point is, God takes care of his people. And we see this in the story of the flood. These, it says, are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect. That word perfect is an interesting word because it's not the regular word that we think of for perfect, which is complete. Normally, we'd read this and we'd say Noah was just 
that is justified, which means declared not guilty, and complete in his generations. But that's not what the word means here. That word is an interesting word. That word is a Levitical term that talks about purity in a way that they think about without spot or without blemish. So it's more like the sacrificial lamb is perfect. You know, you have to have a perfect lamb to offer as a sacrifice. It has to be without spot or without blemish. Anyway, I know what we got. Would that mean like perfect, like in his DNA? Because he wasn't... <laughs> yeah, I'm deliberately skipping that phrase, but yeah, there's a whole paragraph here that we could talk about. See, when you go back to the whole issue of the Nephilim, the uh, genetically altered offsprings of what may have been, as we talked about last week, there is this, you know, Missler likes to get out into the weird, and Missler sees in this. He sees in this a, uh, a leaning towards the direction that there may have been some gene genealogical damage to the previous generations and Noah's family was untouched. And that's the reason that I bring that up. So we have a commentary on Noah uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, and there are, there are many who argue there's, they, not only have they never seen a flood, They'd never even see, seen rain. We get this from Genesis chapter 2. Uh, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is by faith. Of course, that's Hebrews, the hall of fame of faith that we see. Uh, should I move ahead? Perfect in its generations usually means complete, but it carries the idea without blemish or spot. And I have here a question mark. And I, I, I lean, I, I know I shared with you three interpretations last week. And I know you can tell by the arguments that I made last week that I lean in the direction of the contamination of the human race by fallen angels. And if that interpretation, as weird as it is, it were to be correct, if it was correct, his genealogy was not contaminated by the sons of God. So am I in verse 11 now? The earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence and good God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And that word corrupt is, is again, not the normal Hebrew word for it. It's the word shakath and it means a very strong meaning of destroyed. And so God looked upon the earth and behold, it was destroyed. For all flesh had destroyed his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God's plan, if you'll notice this phrase, and I didn't highlight it this time, God's plan was to destroy the earth and the people with the earth. So whatever, whatever the old world looked like, you know, you see all kinds of speculations of, of one continent. You see uh, the, the dome of, of water vapor over the earth, a constant temperature, no storms, no rain. Whatever it looked like in the old world, that's gone. It was destroyed. God plans to destroy the entire earth. And, you know, we could say, well, you look at the oil reserves in Alaska and you look at the coal in America and, and you look at the oil in the Middle East and you know at least one thing, there must have been a lot of trees. And that's assuming coal comes from trees. Uh, we know there was a lot of trees, but, but we do know that the old world was vastly different than what we see today. And, 
And if you ever have the opportunity, research some of what scientists, believing scientists, are saying the old world was like. I, uh, I, I, Ken, I can't remember his name. Ken, is it Ham? Talks about trees encapsulated in mud standing vertically and how they said they'd take 30 million years for these trees to petrify, and yet how could they be standing vertically in mud if they petrified? Why didn't they die and fall over? There's all types of arguments for a flood, and I'm not going to get into any of them. I'm just going to believe that Jesus said there was a flood, and honestly, that's good enough for me. We just know the old world was vastly different, and, and, and whatever, whatever was true for Noah and his family in the old world, I mean, Noah was 600 when the flood came, so he was used to the way it was. They're going to face a world that is vastly, vastly different. Uh, temperature swings, uh, viruses that never existed, animals that are now their enemies, a lot of changes after the flood. So he says, make the an ark of gopher wood. I always make a joke out of this. He kept saying to his sons, go for this wood and go for that wood. So it's called gopher wood. The fact is, nobody knows what gopher wood is. Uh, they do think it's possibly the same wood that the Ark of the Covenant was made from. Um, the word ark there is an interesting word. It's, it's a word that describes a box. Uh, it's, it's use of, of the, the ark of bulrushes that Moses' mother put him in on the flood. So it really just means a big box. Uh, and this is the fashion uh, which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. You know, of course, the question always is, what is a cubit? Uh, if you can picture this as just a big square box. And I noticed when they built the ark uh, in Kentucky, they put a bow and a stern on it, which I don't know if Noah would have done that. I really don't. I picture more like a barge than I do an actual boat. It wasn't made for navigation, it was made for floating. But it's really designed by God prior to physics, prior to marine dynamics, prior to any experience on the part of mankind. It was designed by God to be as stable as he could make it. Now those dimensions, 300 by 50 by 30, is the same basic proportions as a modern supertanker. Uh, the next time the world will see a boat this big a box this big, a tanker this big will be the Titanic, will be the next time we see a boat that large. Now, test chambers have proven that the roll stability is this thing will right itself almost to a 90 degree tilt. It's that stable. Now, most people assume that the cubit, depends on who the king was, you know, depending on how big he was, but the cubit was generally from your elbow to the tip of your finger. And the royal cubit, they added the four fingers. So you have a standard cubic as 17 and a half inches and a royal cubit at about 20.2, so say 20 inches. Uh, and they're leaning now, researchers are leaning towards the royal cubit because they find that a lot of these things, these archeological discoveries would indicate that a lot of them were built on the royal as opposed the regular cubit. So we can look at it each way, uh, 438 feet long, 73 feet wide, 43 feet wide, 43 feet high. You're in a room right now that's 50 feet long, 35 feet wide, 12 feet high. So double the width and add the length times six. 
All right, six times the length, twice the width. Can you imagine that? It's hard to imagine. I guess you're over there, uh, and we, if we go that way, we'll be meeting in the uh, congregational church, I guess. Uh, so probably from the congregational church to here, uh, twice this width, 12 feet high is one story. It's three stories high. Stack three of them, one on top of another. People say this is impossible. Well, it's not impossible. We've built wooden boats this big before. Not before this, but we've built them before. Humans have built wooden boats this big. We just found out that steel lasts a lot longer. Now, the smaller cubit, that's to take the conservative approach, will produce 522 standard livestock cars used today, train cars, 522. They're capable of holding 125,000 sheep. And I've already said this, it'll be 6,000 years before we build another boat this big. And we'll call it the Titanic, which probably is not a good example. Uh, although, I guess you could say the ark crashed on a mountain too, huh? Uh, verse 12, A window thou shalt thou make in the ark, and a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. So it has a door on the side, it has a window all the way around the top for ventilation. And the lower section and third story shalt thou make. Three decks divided into as many nests as he needs. Now there are those that like to, I, I, I want to say spiritualize it. I don't think there's anything not literal about this reading. And I know it's not what you're used to hearing, but I think this is as literal as it gets. I think you can trust every word of it. But at the same time, I think it's a model of something. I think it pictures something. And Jesus said, I am the door. There's one door in the ark. There's one way to heaven. I am the door. If by me any man shall enter in, he shall be saved. That's the point. It's a picture of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The ark carried them through the judgment of the flood. And Jesus will carry us through the judgment of God. Just as the blood of the lamb painted on the lentils protected the firstborn sons of the judgment in Egypt. You see this picture carried out throughout the Bible, the consistency of these 66 books. Once inside, they were completely protected. As near as we can tell, and the record doesn't say, but as near as we can tell, not one of these animals died in the year that it spent in the ark. Even with all those animals and people and a storm, no one died. For us, once we're inside Jesus, or should I say Jesus is inside us, once we're in Christ, Nothing will happen to us. He said, he that liveth and believeth in me will never die. That's a promise. We're going to survive this world in Christ. It's the only way. Now, they laughed at Noah. They laughed at Lamech and Methuselah. They laughed at Enoch. They laughed and then they died. And they're not laughing any longer. And, you know, we worry. I worry a lot about people, what they think of me. You know, am I, do I sound stupid, unscientific? Am I this or am I that? They can laugh all they want, but we know they won't be laughing forever. Soon, the world will stop laughing at the church. I'm in verse 17 now. Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters. Um, I, I, I can't pronounce Hebrew. I, I can barely read it anymore. M-A-B-B-U-L, mobable. I bring a, a cataclysm, a hydraulic cataclysm of water upon the earth. Not just high water. Rushing out of control 
gushing, swift, destructive waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein there's a breath of life. Some people say, well, what about the fish? I think a lot of fish died. I actually believe, now I don't have any reason to believe this, and I don't know where I got it from. I hope it was from a, a biblicist. I hope it was the Genesis flood or the book of Genesis by Henry Morris. I hope I got it from that. But I, I tend to believe that the waters were fresh water before the flood, and that when he opened the great fountains of the deep, that's what salinated our water. And I don't know if you know this, but without the saltwater oceans, viruses would kill us very quickly. The, 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 the best antibiotic, the best control of virus in our world is the salt in the oceans. So the actual cycle of, of rain that brings fresh water into the oceans actually, and then evaporates again, actually cleanses the water that we have to live off of. Without that, even, even today, after two, two decades of fighting this chronic uh, infection in my nose, salt water still beats that bacteria back. That's my immune system is squirting salt water in my nose. And it's because salt is a wonderful purifying agent. You know, These are pretty dramatic words. I know a flood of waters, not used anywhere else in the Bible, unique in history. The idea of gushing or flowing. Now... I know Christians who believe this was not a worldwide flood, but that this was a local flood. And you think, well, why not just tell Noah and his family to get on a camel and ride someplace else? I mean, head for high ground. And why not just, why not just have the animals high, uh, migrate somewhere to where they'd be safe? It doesn't make any sense in these words if this is not a worldwide cataclysm. And I... I, I don't want to find myself in a position of having to argue why it is that on any mountain I've ever climbed to the top of, I find seashells, you know? I mean, that's, that certainly says something to me. I, I don't know why it doesn't say something to the geologist, but uh, it certainly says something to me. You find skeletons of fish on the highest mountain I've ever climbed. I think, wow, these fish could fly, you know? <laughs> well, think of Noah's trust. He'd moved of things not seen. That's us. God calls us to do something we don't understand. We've never seen before, but we do it anyway. That's the definition of faith. The world had never seen a flood, nor had they ever seen it rain. But with thee I will establish my covenant. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, the blood of the new covenant. It's a contract. I'm going to establish a contract with you, Noah. An agreement. <clears throat> And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee, and they shall be male and female. And you think, wow, now there's a job. Go out and find a male and a female of every species of animal in the world. But Noah didn't do that. And God didn't tell him to. He just said, bring them into the ark. I think it's the next verse. Of the fowls after their kind of cattle, after their kind of every creeping thing of the earth, after his kind, two of every kind, shall come unto thee to keep them alive. So Noah just set up his beach chair. When he was done with the boat, 
which if it's like my boat, you're never done with a boat, so he was probably working the whole time. But he'd look up over the rail and two of something would show up and all he had to do was lead them into their, the place where God had ordained them to be. You know. The world had had ample warning. It started with Enoch that we know of, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah all preached about the coming judgment. The world had ample time. All preaching, all warning them to repent, all encouraging them to get on the ark, and no one chose to listen. And yet, if you do the math here, and do I have it here? I, I don't remember whether I included it. I kept editing this down. Um, I have a note here that said it is possible, even probable, that the larger animals came in, had a good meal, went into their respective nest, went into their divided off little stall, and went sound asleep. Which makes sense that they would hibernate. We have no reason to think or, or any reason to believe that they needed to hibernate before the flood, but with the changing weather conditions, it's important that some of these animals hibernate. And I also have heard people argue that they didn't have to be full size. Was there a Tyrannosaurus Rex on the ark? I don't know. I don't know, but I hope he was a little guy. You know, if I was one of Noah's boys, I'd have said, why don't we just bring the eggs, Dad? You know, they're cute when they're this big. No, I don't know. I don't know if the dinosaurs were all lost because of the flood. You know, I've heard everything from a cataclysm from a comet to uh, the actual flood that killed them or just the changing environment that killed them. And I've heard other scientists argue that they're still alive. They just can't grow to the size that they grew to then because of the lack of oxygen that's in our atmosphere. Because at one point, the oxygen saturation was a lot heavier. I've heard all types of arguments. That I don't know these things. But I doubt, if, I doubt seriously if they brought a full-grown T-Rex onto the boat. I, I do. I, it does make sense. And you, you realize that the vast majority of animals in the world are smaller than a sheep. Yeah, some are bigger, but not that many of them are bigger. The big job, the big job. Now, I, I've packed out my boat for a month. I've been on my boat six weeks is the longest I've ever been on my boat. But eight, eight adult human beings, right? And 80,000 animals. That's, this is an assignment here. He didn't have to go find these critters, but take thou unto thee all the food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it unto thee. This is where you, you kind of think. I mean, I remember one time we took a Navy boat, uh, a 60-foot ocean racer, and we took it from Annapolis to Cape May. And there was another guy. His name was Pirelli, and I and, and the skipper. And when we got there, we, we were, they had all this, the Navy eats pretty good. We had all this fresh baked bread and fresh eggs and desserts and stuff. And we, we were on the boat for about 20 hours. We ate half of their stores in that 20 hour period. And then 18 midshipmen got on and took her out in the ocean and we got off. And I bet they had something to say about us. So I don't know how you feed. 80,000 animals and eight, eight adults for a year on a boat, but uh, I really hope a lot of them were hibernating. Now, too many people reject this story out of hand. It's impossible, they say, but it's not. Most land animals are small, and, and if they were to uh, 
hibernate, it would explain a lot of reduced load on not only feed, but waste. Waste would certainly be an issue. Authorities estimate 18,000 species of mammals on the earth, birds and reptiles. Mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians in the world today. If you double that number for known species that have gone extinct, that comes to 72,000 animals. Allow for those animals where there were seven specified for offerings when they make it to the other side. Uh, that comes to 75,000 animals. Since the ark could hold 125,000 sheep and the average size of an animal is smaller than a sheep, it's reasonable to expect that a building that was twice this wide, three times this high, and almost over to the congregational church could hold that many animals. Now, I would love to see how Noah timbered that wood. I would love to see how they built that ark. I mean, I, I doubt seriously, you've been to the ark, right? Uh, did they use hand tools to build the woodworking or did they use sawmills, tractors, and cranes? Yeah, can you imagine in Noah's day trying to do that? You know, they hired the Amish. They hired the Amish. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean you're talking about the the current ark? I'm talking about Noah. <laughs> no, there's no reason to think they didn't have block and falls. There's no reason to think they didn't have saws. There's no reason to think they didn't have uh, some of the implements that we have. But boy, give me a gasoline or diesel engine anytime. Anyway, there's also ample room for the one million, plus that, one million plus different species of insects. But they could have also just laid their eggs and hibernated, right, until the flood was over. I don't, I wouldn't want to have been standing at the gate when one million plus species of insects came marching on board, you know, especially if some of them were wood eaters. That would make me nervous. People have said, why do they pitch it within and without? And some people say, well, he pitched it without. He put pitch on the outside because that was to keep the water out, and he pitched it on the inside to keep it from rotting out. But if there were really one million species, two million insects, it might have been to keep them from eating the ark before it sank, you know. I don't know. It's easy to assume that their eggs would survive a flood regardless. So you don't need to argue this kind of thing. So then you have this conclusion here. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. Well, wouldn't that be nice to be written of us? Thus did Bob or Jen or you, according to all that God commanded us to do. It summarizes slightly more than a century of obedience. The whole time Noah's building this ark in his driveway, he's preaching. First Peter tells us that. Well, the question is, what would happen if God came to me and told me to build a boat in my driveway that was 505 feet long, 100 plus feet high, 100 feet wide? What if God told us another flood was coming and we needed to save our family? Well, the good news is he'll never do that because he's already provided a way to save our families. All we have to do is tell our families and tell our friends People laugh at us even now when we tell them about Jesus, just as they laughed at Noah when he started building that boat. You know, when I built my boat, it was undercover. People couldn't see what I was doing. But when I, when I got ready to uh, turn it over, I had to pull it out in the front yard. And it looked like, I, it looked like a beached whale in my front yard. Uh, and people would stop and say, what is that? It was this hideous epoxy green that they 
used to paint steel bridges on, so it looked like this huge, moldy, dead whale in my front yard. That, that wouldn't even be a dinghy on the ark compared to what they must have thought about Noah's ark. I, I just can't imagine. Well, the good news is God isn't asking us to build an ark. Our ark is Jesus. That's our shelter. In Him we're safe from judgment. In Him we find comfort and peace, which of course is Noah's name. All God is asking us to do is to come to Him and live lives that will show others the way to get to Him. Come unto me, all ye that labor, Jesus said, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, Jesus said, and go in and out and find pasture. The last chapter of the last book of the Bible has the same invitation that Noah made all the way back in the first book of the Bible. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. The invitation is out there. We just need to receive it. Thank goodness we don't have to build this boat again. The boat, I do believe, is a good picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it illustrates surviving in a flood. Let's pray. Father, my hope is that not one soul in this room has not heard this message again and again, has not heard that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and has not bowed their head and received Him as their Savior. It's my hope, Father, it's my prayer that every soul here knows Your Son personally. And Lord, if there is anyone here today that has not received Jesus as their Savior, I pray that this would be the time that they bow their head. And they say, Lord, I've never heard this before. Or they'll say, Lord, I've heard this over and over, and I've never believed it. But Lord, if this is true, if Jesus is the only way to heaven, then please forgive my sin. Please come into my life and save me. And Father, I know that if they'll pray that prayer in the name of Jesus, the promise remains that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.